My name is Bruce Shear, author of Inspire Your Buyers, Go to Market with a Story that Sizzles, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Bruce Shear to talk about his book, Inspire Your Buyers. Go to market with a story that sizzles. Bruce Shear is an author, international keynote speaker, and the CEO of InspireYourBuyers.com. He has applied and honed his go-to-market narrative development model with industry giants such as IBM, SAP, Microsoft, HP, Oracle, Google, Adobe, Citibank, Motorola, and numerous startups around the world. He is the president of National Speakers Association Northwest, and he and his wife live on Vashon Island in Washington State during the summers. And interesting fact... In the winter, he and his wife travel throughout North America living in an Airstream trailer. Bruce, congratulations on Inspire Your Buyers, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks a lot, Douglas. I, I really appreciate being here. So I learned about Bruce Shear from the most amazing marketing book ever. When I, I read that book, and you and 35 other authors wrote it, and then I interviewed Mark Schaefer, who, as you may have heard, is the king of the Marketing Book Podcast. I am your king. So tell us uh, about the most amazing marketing book ever for those that may not have had an opportunity to listen to that interview, which a link to which I will include at this episode's uh, website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. Oh, yeah. No, I'd be glad to talk about that, Douglas. So um, Mark Schaefer started an online community. It's in Discord. And it's called the Rise Community. And I joined it about oh, a little over a year ago. And right upon joining, I found out about a really neat collaborative, collaborative project that the community was starting and it was writing a book. And uh, I just raised my hand like, like a bunch of other people saying, hey, I'd, I'd love to collaborate on that. And uh, lo and behold, you know, about a year later, all of us working on our respective chapters, uh, we, we produced – an amazing book. In fact, the most amazing marketing book ever. There you go. And, uh, <laughs> hosted by Mark Schaefer and friends. But it was just a joy, a joy seeing everybody be, uh, become authors who hadn't written before, uh, to go through the whole book process of uh, conceiving the book, creating it, launching it, you know, just that whole life cycle of a book. And then just being rewarded with bestseller status on Amazon for for just a job well done. 
And we did a couple things that the book world probably hasn't done before. All 35 authors narrated their own chapters that you can hear on Audible. And man, you know, I was down in the Airstream, I think, in Mexico doing that. And I had to do it multiple times <laughs> and train my brain, Douglas, on how to narrate a book, you know, because it has to be, a, you know, you have to follow the written test, text exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you were yeah, probably trying to do it in Spanish, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, Douglas. Right. <laughs> Which I failed. Yeah, but but we got it over the board. Uh, uh, Audible definitely approved the whole thing. All 35 authors, you know, wonderfully. And so we have this amazing book across different formats, you know, paperback, uh, Kindle, and Audible. And and it's just been wonderful. And, and the feedback we've been getting on the book is just uh, powerful, you know. Professors are bringing it into their classrooms uh, at the university level, et cetera, and just just all the feedback we've been getting is is just quite sound. And this was all created before Chat GPT, so it's the real deal. Based yes, on real experience by some highly competent authors. Yes, and what's interesting is that it had so many co-authors. So there were like about 35 of you all. And just yesterday, I was in that Discord uh, community. Everybody can join it if you go to that episode with Mark and you can find out how to join that that community. But it was also extremely well edited. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, were, there were a few of the authors that helped out with that. And that was uh, very interesting to me because over the years, because I, I, re- I get to read a lot of these books, sometimes I'll have a book that comes to me and it's Maybe it's a series of 25 interviews with authors, <laughs> and there's no thread through the whole thing. You know, it's just like a trans bunch of transcribed interviews, and I ended up not re- reading it and featuring it. But this one uh, was a joy, and I've enjoyed getting to meet everybody, uh, all the different uh, authors, like yourself. But enough, <laughs> enough about Mark Schaefer and uh, the amazing marketing book that all of you wrote. Let's talk about your book. So your book is only about 80, just over 80 pages. And I always argue that it's more difficult to write a short book than a long book. Douglas, the reason I wrote the book uh, briefly, and it did take an amazing amount of time, in fact, two years of really working and honing and sharpening that book, was because somebody planted a seed in my mind, uh, another author uh, 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 published by Barrett Kohler quite quite a bit. Her name's Janelle Barlow. Dr. Janelle Barlow wrote a beautiful book called A Complaint is a Gift. But she had mentioned to me that, Bruce, the ideal book can be read in the course of a flight. Uh Uh-huh. So my target audience is, you know, busy sellers, busy sales leaders, busy marketers and marketing leaders, busy entrepreneurs, busy academics, busy students. And uh, what I wanted to do is make a short book. And I, I jokingly tell people it's light on calories, but it's very rich in nutrient. There you go. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, there was another author who did that that I can recall right off the top of my head, uh, Jeff Davis who wrote a book about sales and marketing oh, alignment. Sure. And it was only about 100 pages. And, of course, I've read books about that topic that are longer. And he said he wrote it for the same reason. He wrote it so a CEO could read the whole thing on one flight. And literally, yesterday morning, a CEO shot me a, a photo of my book in his hand on LinkedIn through LinkedIn Messages and said, Bruce, I'm reading this on my way to Denver today. 
and he's flying from the New Jersey area. <laughs> so, yeah, but he'll be able to do it. Yeah. I had another CEO read it in the doctor's office waiting for his appointment. But again, my, my mission was I didn't need to get to a certain thickness. And I think that's a lot of, you know, maybe the myth and, and paradigm. You know, you need to have enough heft in your book. Not on this one. Yeah. When I get a book that's over 200 pages, the first question I ask is why? <laughs> and I like how you got right to the point at the beginning of your book with a story, the beginning of which I will read right now. In the lead up to the 2020 pandemic, I accompanied the chief commercial officer of one of my clients, a multinational enterprise based in Europe, to their company sales event. The CCO, referred to as Jeremy for confidentiality purposes, had spent a year attempting to alter the company's messaging and positioning. His aim was to convey that the company was highly innovative and equipped to assist clients in adapting to rapid changes in their industry. Additionally, he wanted to emphasize the company's global presence and ability to bring cutting-edge innovations from all over the world to bear in local customer situations. While at the sales event, we met with some of Jeremy's regional revenue leaders. To gauge the effectiveness of his messaging and positioning changes, he requested that each salesperson provide him with their elevator pitch about the company. Unfortunately, the results were disheartening. The salespeople spoke of the company's longevity since World War II, which suggested that the company was old-fashioned and set in its ways. They also mentioned the company's origins and deep connection to a specific region, as well as several random messaging points that Jeremy believed would only confuse and turn off their target customers. In essence, he heard the exact opposite of what he had hoped for. About halfway through the meeting, Jeremy, although he maintained his professional demeanor, felt depressed. He couldn't understand why nobody understood their new corporate positioning and how to stay on message. What's worse, he knew there was a real cost. They were a legacy organization in their field and faced extreme market pressure from new nimble startups. Sales and revenue were down and they were losing market share. At the same time, they had multiple innovative solutions and had made big investments that were ready for prime time. Ultimately, they needed the new positioning and messaging to take hold and to accelerate revenue growth, especially for Jeremy to keep his job. So, Bruce, you write that Jeremy's problem was what you call random acts of conversation. <laughs> random acts of conversation. Explain. Yeah, I'd say probably two, two dimensions of it. Random acts of content and random acts of conversation. And the shortened version of that is just random acts. And I say content from the marketing side, conversations from the sales side. And uh, that, that's the product uh, of, of what's, what's normal out there. But he, uh, one of his uh, teammates had been doing some beautiful branding work and, and put, putting things together. They, they had the basis for an amazing story, go-to-market narrative. And uh, they just hadn't crystallized it, nor had they brought that out to the organization. So everything that was happening in the wilds there was, was, were random acts. And then he got to witness that personally and, and felt incredibly disheartened. <laughs> but uh, luckily, uh, I was there, he was there for, for that disaster, and we got to have lunch together and, and literally uh, turn the ship. And oh. uh, so, so we had, had a beautiful time working together as well to, to, to write that situation. 
Let me just quote from uh, another place in the introduction. You write, at its most basic, a go-to-market narrative is deceptively simple. It's a story you tell a customer that shows the customer the problem they have, the outcome they should desire, and how, by working with you, they can achieve unprecedented success. This narrative then becomes the strategic backbone of the go-to-market strategy. Everything from product development and offerings to marketing positioning and sales conversations can be designed to align with the go-to-market narrative. And you write that for all its simplicity, most organizations still don't have a unifying go-to-market narrative. Why do you think that is? It's part of doing the deep work and and getting super-duper clear on, on on what that story is, and uh, hey, everybody's moving at you know, the, you know, a fast pace and trying to get get tactical, get results, and uh, but but this type of work is is highly highly strategic. It requires a lot of research and thinking, and uh, a lot of people just don't go there, and and they don't have the framework, they don't have the guidance and methodology to to pull it off and pull it off well. I, I, I do see attempts at this all the time, but I just rarely uh, see it done done well. You know, um, you know, I can count them on one, <laughs> maybe two hands, where 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 this go, goes well in terms of that narrative being created and then adopted by right. uh, by sales, by marketing, by product leaders, by by uh, you know the partner leaders, the strategic partners themselves, by customers. You know, once that narrative uh, you know is created, it can go out there and just you know effectively be part of of that brand. Well, Bruce, you write that those that that do give it a shot, and some 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 are able to successfully do it, but a lot of them make one of three mistakes. <laughs> And this is real important to the listener, I think, who may be thinking, well, I, I could take a crack at that. So, and, and they could, but I want to mention, I want you to walk us through those three. This is on page 11 of the introduction. Uh, the, the three big mistakes that, in your experience, you've seen organizations make when, when trying their best to get this done. I'd say the first big mistake, Douglas, is doing nothing, mm-hmm. where you know, the leaders and, you know, I've been in the boardrooms where these conversations happen where, you know, leaders would say, hey, we, we hire good people and they can just figure that out. Right. I got a marketing work. department. What are they here for? You know? Exactly. Yeah. If they don't do their job, they're fired. It's mm-hmm. it's not my issue. I hire great people. If, if, if my sellers can't get out there and connect the dots and, and, and make magic, hey, they're not good sellers. They shouldn't be working here anyways. Um, so there's kind of this, you know, mentality that, that I do bump into that, you know, hey, I don't need to do anything. It, it, it'll take care of itself. Right. It reminds me of a, of a CEO who might think, uh, I don't need to pay for sales training. I've got a sales manager for that. Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> right. Akin to that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about number two. Yeah. The, the, se- the second thing, and I see this uh, very often, especially in bigger organizations where, hey, we'll, we'll farm this off to somebody. And uh, very often that somebody is a, you know, probably in the product domain, product marketing director, product leader, um, and, and they, they own creating a go-to-market narrative. Uh, or, you know, it's somebody in marketing, but typically kind of junior, uh, definitely not at the CMO level, mm-hmm. uh, but, but down a layer or maybe even two below. 
or you know sometimes a a, a revenue leader a sales leader want, wants to to own that and just knows that they're getting killed out there and um so, or, you know, one of the sellers kind of cooks something up and then passes it back and it starts getting adopted because that seller's a high performer and because nobody supported them, they supported themselves and, and built something. So, the, the, you know, so that those internal initiatives that aren't, aren't at that, you know, the, the C-suite level or the leadership level, you know, I see some, some attempts there. Right. And, and it also and sounds like probably, something where they are uh, probably not able to see the forest the trees because of the, where they're lo- located inside the organization and they may not want to push back uh, on a high level strategic issue that's that's right yeah I, uh, gosh one organization that i was serving that was uh, acquired by a multi-billion dollar company um <laughs> you know somebody was building story happened to be in the marketing uh, function and came up with an expression that hey we're more human and um uh, I'll tell you, you know, that that wasn't going to resonate with their buyers. The fact that they were claiming that they were more human. Uh, you know, I had another organization I was serving that the marketing function was working on on part of their storyline. And they were saying um, to some of the scale-up organizations that they were targeting as their ideal customer profile, they were trying to tell them that, hey, we can help you behave and function like a big, huge company. And many of these, uh, you know, scale-up companies on a, on a breakneck uh, trajectory, the last thing they wanted in their life was to behave like a big lumbering company, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, you know they're, they're all about speed and action and simplicity. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times those internal initiatives, they, they're, they're insular. And like you say, Douglas, you know, the people that are crafting the message – don't really have a firm grasp on on the customers they're serving, you know, the big problem that they're solving for and how to resonate with the target buyers in those yes. organizations. And I want to unpack some of those. Let's talk about number three, which brought to mind Andy Cunningham's book, Get to Aha. Explain the, the, the third of the big problems you see that companies make when they're trying to uh, solve for this problem. Yeah, well, the third problem is typically, hey, let's just outsource this. And, and the typical outsource par- uh, partner is is a brand agency of some nature, a marketing agency. And um, they, they become, you know, disconnected with the customers as well. You know, they probably don't understand the solution to, to the depth that's, that's necessary to, to really, you know, help figure out what is our narrative approach and strategy. So what what they'll default to is you know creating a you know a sexy tagline or, or you know some brand identity elements around that narrative, which probably look really good. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know they they do. Or I think even as Andy had described that, you know, hey, that you know that's kind of the frosting on the cake. But you know, I loved her analogy metaphor that you know, hey, the inside of the cake really needs to be expressed, and that needs to be good too. Um, so they, they might kind of put lipstick on something, but it, it might not go well. And, and I often see it, it goes uh, incredibly wrong where, where everybody. So the, the, the nature of all this, Douglas, is really losing time. You make these false efforts and attempts and, and you're losing time where you could be getting market traction. And that, that's the sadness that, that, that I, I come to when, when I see these, the, these attempts that, you know, just a, a lot of time and energy is spent 
and without really kind of moving that organization forward with the go-to-market narrative that sizzles. Yes. So just to tie up the story about uh, Jeremy, you write, chances are you might recognize yourself in Jeremy's story. As a business marketing or sales leader responsible for revenue growth, you likely face intense pressure. You might feel you are missing a key strategic piece of the puzzle as part of your go-to-market strategy. If you find yourself thinking, I need a new message, or literally, our story sucks, then this book <laughs> is for you. So jumping ahead, you and you've touched on this, but you write that few companies understand the connection of the narrative with a, being a catalyst for driving revenue growth. Make the case for that revenue growth and, and why you think companies are not connecting those dots. You know, I just think it's a, it's a blind spot. Douglas, uh, they they don't understand the power of narrative because they probably haven't had that experience, sadly. And like I say, I, I rarely see this done well. And um, but I'll, I'll just give you a couple of examples, kind of fun ones. I was thinking about them as I was coming to your show. Um, I was working with a company called Concur in the um, you know expense management space at the time, and uh, they were acquired by SAP a couple of years ago. Um, but I'm out in London training their sellers on their new narrative. And the narrative isn't just words. It's, it, it's a visual narrative as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was even teaching them how to whiteboard that narrative. Right. And I want to talk about that in a few minutes because I got some very specific questions about the, the visual part. So it was really fun. You know, their, their head of Asia Pacific sales, he <laughs> reached out to me after the training. It was about a week later. And he said, Bruce, man, well done. Guess what? You know, I, I joined one of our reps and we did a swing back to one of the cu- customers where we, we had been told we lost the deal, but we just begged for another meeting. And we came in and had that interactive whiteboard discussion. Guess what? Contract closed. Excellent. <laughs> but uh, Douglas, I, I just hear that all the time. Yeah, literally all the time. You know, where, hey, we, or I, I, I'll, I'll give you another one, just a quick one at, at a startup level. Uh, I was working with a startup as their, you know, fractional CMO here in the Seattle area. And uh, I I organized a a focus group so we could, you know, test and validate the story we wanted to tell, their their go-to-market narrative. And uh, one of the leaders that we brought in, a business owner, goes, hey, Bruce, what you just shared in this session today, I met with their head of sales. I I heard nothing like this. And uh, which I felt bad inside because, you know, I know that head of sales <laughs> was suffering. Um, but literally uh, that the next day he reached out to the CEO who had invited him into that, you know, focus group and said, hey, we got to talk and then immediately became a customer. And the only thing that changed, Douglas, was the narrative. Product didn't change. Nothing else changed. Just the story that he heard in our in our focus group. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Well, Mr. Shear, you just made the revenue case for me, and I think for all the listeners. So let's jump ahead to a couple other things that I think are um, very important, and I see a lot of companies struggle with. Uh, let's see. You, we, you're right. When you look at most websites, they tend to feature solutions-centric product content. Solutions-centric product content versus a focus on the customer and their challenges. 
why is this solution-centric approach more dominant? And what prevents more companies from taking a more buyer-centric narrative? I'd, uh, maybe I could give you a little bit of framing, Douglas, uh, on this. I, I just see it all the time. But uh, I, um, you had mentioned before that you saw my my sizzle reel, my speaker reel, mm-hmm. off my website. That's the one where you're riding your your bike. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm yeah, going to include that in this episode's website page, so everybody can see it. <laughs> oh, cool, cool. Very well Thank produced, you. and it's <laughs> on uh, Vashon Island, right? Is that how you pronounce it, Vashon? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I teach people how to spend a whole lot of money during the pandemic when you're stuck at home with that video. That, that's proof. <laughs> yeah. um, so anyways, anyway. uh, you know, what I do, Douglas, is I, I'll ask people a bit of a question. I'll ask them, hey, what are you selling at the end of the day? A solution? A, uh, you know, a, a problem or an outcome? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a trick question. Well, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you beat me to the punchline there. It, well, no, explain why. It, okay. You say, uh, do you sell a product, a solution, or a, what was the third one? No. It, yeah. Are, are we selling a, a solution, a problem, or an outcome? Right. Selling problem, the, solution, or outcome. What, what's interesting is why that's a trick question. Absolutely. Yeah. So the typical responses are, well, at the end of the day, we're selling a solution. So most of the people respond that way. And then a few people that have been around the block, they'll they'll think hard and then they'll go, at the end of the day, I'm selling an outcome. And I did feature that in the book, you know, John Chambers, who, you know, uh, uh, who's built a hell of an organization before he left Cisco. um, You know, that was his number one piece of advice when I met him down at, you know, Consumer Electronics Show in, in Vegas a couple of years ago when he launched his book. He said, don't sell products, sell outcomes. So, so a lot of people go there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I rarely ever, ever hear this, but sell the problem. It's, it's normally either the solution or the outcome. And it depends on the experience level typically of the person, especially if they've been in a sales function or talk to customers. And, uh, and then I, I let the audience know, hey, Douglas, it's a trick question. <laughs> At the end of the day, you're selling all three. Right. And let me underscore that with a quote from the, the very beginning of the book, the page five. In the abstract, a go-to-market narrative seems deceptively simple. You will craft it around your ideal client profile and target buyers. You will spotlight their big problem that your big solution can help them solve. Then you will promise them a desired outcome. Next, you will introduce the big solution in a simple way that they can quickly comprehend. You will then prescribe next steps. Now, we're going to talk about all those, but you mentioned that a lot of folks still haven't haven't mastered that. But let me just jump ahead. Explain what you mean when you write that executives like to solve big problems versus many symptoms, meaning the people you're selling to. They like to solve big problems, not many symptoms. And, of course, I see a lot of companies – leading with with many symptoms explain yeah in in the book douglas i don't know if you saw that uh, analogy but you know the analogy of strep throat <laughs> you know you, let's say you have strep throat and you want to solve for that you, you don't want to solve necessarily just for fatigue or just for fever or just for you know a scratchy throat you you want to solve the big problem you want that sickness out of your life and, and how do we deal with that? 
So that's what I typically teach and what I'm trying to search for. Because when I when I start working with clients, typically I'll say, hey, what, what's the problem we're solving for? And then I'll just get this huge laundry list uh, of, of many, many things, many symptoms, if you would, of what we, what we can resolve for with our solution. And I'm like going, guys, that's not good enough. We need to think bigger. You know, we, we want to have conversations typically with decision makers and, and how can we boil up and simplify in a way that a, you know, time-limited decision maker <laughs> will appreciate? And, 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 and it'll help us clarify as well, truly, what is the big problem that we're solving for? And I was just talking to a CEO the other day. He read my book over the weekend, <laughs> said, hey, Bruce, I, you know, jokingly, I did my homework. Now, now let, let's get into it. And, and his number one thing was, I'm really struggling. How do I frame the big problem that we're solving for? You write that to tell a great story, the first thing you need to figure out is who is the hero. You can have the perfect narrative, but if it's not geared toward the people who can buy what you're selling, you'll never sell anything. Explain the mistake a lot of companies make related to identifying the wrong hero. Yeah, I'll, I'll t- just do that through a, uh, a story. <laughs> I, I receive multiple requests for, for meetings because I, I carry CEO in my title. So on LinkedIn, I'm just a royal target for anybody. <laughs> And uh, the other day, I had a, a founder reach out to me, like going, hey, and you know, I, I, I play in the sales and marketing world, and he's like going, hey, I got this new sales enablement type of solution. Let's get together. I can't wait to show you this. Let's schedule a demo straight away. And Douglas, that just would never happen. You know, he, uh, th- that person, the hero of his story is his product. And, uh, you know, a lot, so many people think that way. And so what I'm trying to frame is, is a notion of, you know, buyer centricity. You know, the hero of the story should be the buyer. And we need to design the storyline from that buyer back perspective. You know, just know, uh, you know, but that requires understanding what's the ideal client profile, the type of organization we're targeting. Right, but a lot of companies are targeting the wrong person to begin with. For instance, uh, I can remember years ago um, reading about this company that sold software to law firms, and so they started targeting lawyers and did all you know went to the trade shows and direct mailed all the lawyers, and finally they did what they should have done. And they went to the salespeople and said, hey, (laughs) take us back to the scene of the crime. When you actually make a sale, who are you dealing with? And, of course, the salespeople being, you know, Weisenheimers, they go, yeah, we noticed you've been targeting lawyers. We never talk to lawyers. But you've won a lot of great creative awards with your uh, content there uh, and your your advertising. We never talk to lawyers unless we're visiting a prospect and we ask someone where the bathroom is and it happens to be a lawyer. We only (laughs) deal with law firm administrators law practice administrators, at which point they realized they had been wasting a lot of money reaching out to the wrong people. Because what would happen is the law firm administrator, she was the one that discovered that they needed to upgrade this particular software. She was going to have to implement it. She was the one who had the whole budget, and she would simply present it to the partners and say, this is a decision we need to make. This is my recommendation. They'd say, great, go forth and do great work. In your book, you have an example of that with, uh, I think it was a virtual reality uh, medical tool. Tell us about that. 
Here, or actually, Douglas, if I could talk about another one that just makes this point and just lands it so down or really well. Um, one of my really good friends based out in Asia Pacific had a business develop, development for a company uh, that, creates a la- that creates a language platform. To help people, you know, in, you know, in foreign countries. Oh, learning. I'm sorry. That's right. I, I, I'm I'm referencing the wrong one. I meant to ask about that one. That's right. Yeah, the the language one. So I, this storyline goes. You know, I, I call my buddy, tell him I'm working on this book, and and little did I know that he was going to give me just some powerful fodder for it. Um, but he was talking about what he's trying to accomplish and how he was kind of having a tough time selling it into the Chinese market. And then, I'm, and of course, I jump into consulting mode. That's kind of how I wake up in the morning. But I'm like, I was going, okay, who, who's the target organization you know, for this? And he's like, going, well, we're just focused on language schools uh, you know, across uh, China. And I'm like, going, okay, cool. That makes sense. Uh, what are you selling them? What, what, you know, if you just had one, two, three, or no more than four words, what are you helping them achieve with your solution? And just kind of had some fun with that with him, that question. And so he kind of pondered, 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 and then he answered, confidence. I'm helping Chinese language students have the confidence to learn English. And then when they have that confidence, they can go off to, you know, further their education in North America or other English-speaking countries and, you know, just have beautiful careers and our platform gives them the English language confidence. And I'm like going, okay, cool. So students, students are your target buyers then? They, they buy that platform? And I, I jokingly said that tongue in cheek. He goes, no. And I go, Who, who's actually the, the decision maker in this whole puzzle? Who, who's, who's your buyer? He goes, oh, the, the owners of these language institutions or these schools. I go, okay. And they're looking for confidence? He goes, no, no, they're not looking for confidence. Oh, okay, that's what you just told me. Um, and then we started to unpack that and start to figure out what, what are these owners, what are they looking for? <laughs> you know, they, they want higher enrollment. That, that's what they're all about. Yes. And, and how can they get an edge in, 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 in the universe and, and, and attract more students? That, that's what they want. And they're getting beat up by every other language school in China. So they need a, a shiny, attractive edge. You know, so we, we, we had fun talking about that, but you can see the narrative fundamentally shifts based on who the target buyer is. Right. So let's say we've identified the correct buyers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we, I only wanted to, I wanted to bring that up because you wrote about it, but also because I see this a lot, companies targeting the wrong folks. You write that a lot of sales and marketing experts talk about the need to build consensus on a buying committee, which is a good thing. And essentially, this story, this theory states that anyone who might have a say in the buying decision needs to be targeted and convinced by the sales and marketing teams. Bruce Shear, however, has a slightly different take on this. Explain. Yeah, sometimes I think people get a little bit lost in the weeds. They, um, they, uh, I guess, personas gone wild. Maybe Douglas just right. They they want to target everyone in the building or in the organization. Yeah, who, whoever might care or, or be a, an influencer in, in, in having that solution in the building. Uh, but, you know, from my experience and, you know, there, there's science behind it. But, you know, to sell something into the building, you typically need to target who, who has the power 
who has the budget, the decision-making authority, the decision rights, if you would, to make a decision like this. Yeah, they might listen to a lot of different influencers, but at the end of the day, they, they get to make the decision. And I learned a term from another gentleman, a professor down in California, Steve, Steve Martin, not, not the comedian, a different Steve Martin. But he coined a phrase that I just love, the bully with the juice. You know, make sure to spend, you know, inordinate amount of time with the bully with the juice versus everybody else that might be influencing the decision. <laughs> you want to talk to the decision maker. And 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 that's what I carry forward in, in this book that we need to understand, you know, in most cases, who's the bully with the juice? Of course, that might change, you know, in different organizations, different circumstance. But in most cases, who's the bully with the juice? And we need to have them in mind as we craft our narrative. Yes, don't worry about everybody. Start with the bully with the juice. I loved it too. I underlined that. So uh, moving ahead, you say most salespeople and marketers want to move straight from, and these are some terms I've mentioned earlier, they want to move straight from the problem to the solution. Problem, solution. What should they do instead? Thank you, Douglas. Yeah, and that's typically the you know case study format or success story. You know, what was the problem or the challenge? What's the solution we brought in? And then what was the result or the outcomes? And I say flip the the last two. First and foremost, you know, you want to start with the problem, and and I talk about in the book, you want to spotlight that problem. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that everything you know outside of that problem is dark. And that problem is just lit up with that spotlight. And uh, when you do that, and you, then you need to make sure you have agreement with that potential buyer, that, that bully with the juice, on, on the problem to be solved. If you don't have agreement, chances are you're not going to sell anything. You're going to have lots of you know sales conversations and lots of tire kicking and everything else. But if the problem isn't defined and agreed to, you're probably not selling anything at the end of the day. And that would be the desired outcome? You want to plant that problem. Make sure you have agreement there. Mm-hmm. Then from there, talk about what, what, what's the potential what could we achieve together if we decided to change? And, and what, what's that life on the beach look like? You know, what, what, what's that aspirational state look like? Once that problem goes away and then we start achieving an outcome, what's that look like? What's that potential? And then get agreement there, you know, and really anchor on that. Once you have those two anchors, problem and outcome, then it's time to start dipping into the how, the solution domain. How are we going to get there? What's that look like? What are you doing? What am I doing? You know, again, it's, everything here is buyer-centric, but what, what's that solution look like from that buyer perspective? That's not where you open up the hood and start talking about all the features and functions. <laughs> and the you're, brochures. You're still, at a, still, still at a higher level of, you know, hey, how are we going to get there? Bruce, I, I want to solve that problem. And I want that outcome. That sounds awesome. So how, how do we do that? And then you start, you know, framing that up, you know, again, with the big solution I talk about in the book. Right. And then, and then, and only then, you know, and it might not even be at that bully with the juice level, but he might go, hey, you know, I got some people down in the boiler room that I want to check this out, Bruce. And, and then, then they can kick tires and get into features and functions. Typically, people lower in the organization might do that and, and bring back a report to that bully with the juice saying, yep, it checks out. 
but it, at that at that decision making level, it's typically you're you're painting a vision for that solution, not not the the detail. Right, you're right. Spotlighting the big problem ratchets up the customer's pain, and before you move on to the solution to the big problem to take away their pain, it's much better. <laughs> to help them envision a desired outcome and vicariously experience the pleasure they will feel once the problem goes away. And it seems that only then are they really ready to start paying attention to um, discussion of the product and so forth. But you you talk about the big solution. That may be something that uh, you mentioned that, but people may not quite understand the big solution. And I only say that because you mentioned that when you get a business leader to start talking about their solution, it, feels almost impossible to get them to stop. <laughs> ah, boy, oh boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, anyways, the, the big solution, perhaps um, you were asking me about, uh, and I featured in the book, this story about you know VR for doctors. Yeah. That might be a nice way to frame this uh, about how to talk about a solution. That's right. Uh, and storyline goes, you know, I met a guy, uh, he had just graduated a couple of years out of USC with his MBA. He was joining a CEO there in San Francisco where they were attending a healthcare conference and exhibition. And they were uh, showcasing some really cool virtual reality technology for doctors. And um, he, you know, we get into this, what, what do you do dialogue, you know, and I jokingly told him, hey, I help people get their story straight. I'm, I'm a, a BS fixer, broken story fixer. Love it. BS fixer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, he's, and I'm like going, hey, you know, how, how would you frame up what you guys do in, in a real, you know, just give me one, two, three, or no more than four words. And, and you'll hear that from me repeatedly, uh, Douglas, because I like to name things. And he goes, oh, okay. If I had to do it, you know, one, two, three, no more than four words, Netflix for doctors. So he says this, and I just get really confused, you know. So you guys show movies, streaming movies for doctors? And he's like, no, 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 no. Oh, I guess that didn't work very well. And I go, yeah, maybe not. So we started kind of playing the game a little bit. Hey, who's your target customer? Who's the bully with the juice? You know, it all starts there. What's the problem we're solving for? And uh, at, at this instance, you know, their target audience would, would be the chief medical officer. The problem that they were solving for that we framed up was, you know, kind of underperforming clinician teams and, and all the bad things that would happen when the clinician teams, these, these surgeons <laughs> don't perform proper surgeries, horrible things happen, uh, you know, that, that the chief medical officer would care about. So then what's the outcome? If, if we bring virtual reality for doctors in, into play, what, what's the outcome we could promise? And, and, you know, just to be short, better healthcare outcomes. But what's the solution? What's the solution that would help with these underperforming clinician teams to, to drive better healthcare outcomes? And to coin that in one, two, three, or no more than four words, we hit upon three words, experience without risk. Mm-hmm. And so that's the solution, literally, at the end of the day, experience without risk. Oh, okay, that sounds really interesting. Uh, could you push into that a little bit more? Okay, well, here, here's the storyline. You know, these senior doctors don't let junior doctors do the surgeries. You know, they don't trust them. They don't have enough at-bats. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is we can, you know, bring them, these junior doctors, the level of experience without risk. And we can do that by enabling them to do virtual surgeries. 
And Bruce, we've even found that, you know, when we enable these junior doctors to do virtual surgeries and the senior doctors to do virtual surgeries, oftentimes the junior doctors will even outperform the senior doctors. So they, you know, we kind of gamify it a little bit and, and let everybody know, you know, hey, where they stand in terms of their surgery acumen, but we're doing all that through virtual reality. Bad things aren't happening to patients. So that's at a high level, you know, you don't have to go into, oh, you know, we've got this micro learning curriculum. We've got, you know, the a help desk to help people get set up. You know, we have on-ramp types of, you know, you don't have to get into tons of detail to get that conceptual concept across to the person, you know, that bully with the juice, the, the chief medical officer. So yeah, once so you can yeah. carry that narrative… Then they're like going, okay, I, I want to learn more about this. Then, then we can go into you know proofs of concept and other other types of things. To, but only then do they want to hear about it. They didn't want to hear Absolutely. about it beforehand. Yeah. You're right. The best way to name the big solution is to answer the question: How does my product move the customer from the problem state to the outcome state? They don't want to hear about your product at that point. Let's jump ahead to uh, chapter six, which is about next steps. And you write. Since 1995, I've worked with thousands of salespeople and marketers, and I've seen thousands of them make the same blunder. Bruce, what is it? Oh, it, it would be uh, you know taking the customer you know all, all the way towards the end, but not helping that buyer buy. And uh, you well, know, to that, use an Oregon football term, it would be a fumble at the goal line, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Oregon Ducks would never do that. No, they um, wouldn't. But- <laughs> and I, I should add that because you went to Oregon, uh, you're an Oregon Duck, and you're that makes you automatically a uh, San Diego, or excuse me, an LA Chargers fan. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Because <laughs> their quarterback went to Oregon. <laughs> yeah, Justin Herbert. Uh, th- you know, but, hey, fumbles do happen. They they do. Um, so but, what, what do we mean when we say fumble at the goal line? Because I read this part and I thought, oh my gosh, not only have I done that, I see this all the time. Well, I, I'm also a, a, a Seahawk fan, and, and sadly we lost uh, <laughs> Russell Wilson uh, to, to the Broncos, but he has a famous phrase, you know, the, the separations and the preparation. And uh, the, the fifth element is prescribed next steps. So you, you have this wonderful conversation with your buyer, but you need to reserve time to illustrate and discuss next steps. And I recommend prescribing next steps. You know, mo- most junior marketers and sellers would you know, ask the buyer, hey, what do you think are next steps? And the buyer will typically say, send me more information. Or send me a proposal, or, or we'll get yeah, back to you. More, yeah, send me a proposal <laughs> and we'll discuss it internally. Right. And then you call and they go, hey, where are you guys with the uh, proposal? We haven't met yet. And then you call again. Oh, yeah, we're still waiting to meet. Then you call again, no return call. Then you call again, no return call. And, you know, everything goes silent. Nothing right. ever really happened. Well, you write that you teach your clients to arm their sellers and marketers with clear next steps. This is the only part of the sales practice that I recommend crafting and then hard coding. What do you mean by hard coding? Yeah, and I'll mention this through a story. Um, I, my team and I were working between HP and Microsoft, and it was a $375 million bet going to market with eight, solu- eight solutions. So I met with the solution leaders for each of those different units, 
And I did say, hey, what are the next steps? You know, once we talk to the buyers and get them excited about the solution potentiality, you know, the problem we're solving and the outcome we're promising, what are the next steps for, for them to buy? And, and then I would hear, you know, uh, you know, you know, maybe an assessment, may, maybe a proof of concept, you know, a lot, a lot of maybes, a lot of wish-washy responses. And I go, hey, guys, not good enough. Let, let's get this together. I, I want a, you know, hard code. I, I want a slide for every step, that, a potential step that that buyer can take. And, and so what, what's the objective of that step? What's happening during that step? Who's involved? And what's the, the deliverables for that step? I want to get really clear. And uh, because these customers at the time were spending, you know, you know, up to millions of dollars for each of these solution domains to bring them in. And um, so anyways, the fact that we did that was just absolutely awesome. You know, because of that, any sales conversations that they started around those solution domains, those eight, ended up in over a 50% connect rate with that buyer buying. And we won a huge industry award for it that year, HP's you know, Marketing Circle you know, uh, you know, Campaign of the Year Award was won, and you know, much more, a deeper pr- partnership between HP and Microsoft and a lot of go-to-market success. But we prescribed those next steps. So that you know, when a seller was talking to, to that buyer, they could say, hey, based on my experience and the conversation we just had, here's what I'd like to recommend our next steps and really lay those out concretely. But then also ask the question, hey, you know, what, what do you think? You Does know, that what, work for you? Yeah. Picture? Yeah. Or, or what did we miss that you think would be important to help you guys along this journey? Right. You're right. It's and, impossible uh, to overstate how much of an impact packaged next steps can have. You know, Bruce, the thing that strikes me about your book is that these things may sound kind of obvious, <laughs> but they're rarely done, a number of these things. Let's jump ahead to uh, the visuals that we touched on earlier. You write that well-crafted visuals can communicate your go-to-market narrative far more effectively than language alone. You go on to write that most people can tell their entire go-to-market narrative with only two images and that the best visual narratives are simple enough to be sketched during a meeting. And I'm thinking a lot of listeners or maybe your uh, new clients are thinking, no, no, that I can't do that. Explain how they can do this. <laughs> Thank you, Douglas. Yeah, uh, re- recently I was working with a client in the healthcare space, and um, th- their head of product had come to me and um, – general manager level guy and said, hey, you know, I've done really well here. We, we've taken a 47 slide deck and we got it down to 15. I'm not going, hey, congratulations. That, that's really heading in the right direction. That is good. My goal is to get you to one. And he's like, what? You know, <laughs> one slide, how in the hell? You know, we got this really massive platform. There's no way. And uh, with uh, Tableau is one of my favorite success stories of working with a company and getting their story straight before their IPO was Salesforce.com, or not uh, before their IPO and ultimate acquisition of Salesforce.com, I I restate. Um, But I I got the chance to work with them and help them, you know, and and their sales organization, you know, both their commercial and enterprise sales organization uh, and their marketing function. It ended up being a whole company story. I worked directly with uh, the revenue leaders and and their CMO, who uh, luckily was a revenue leader as well, to, to get that story straight. 
and we got that down to one slide, and and ultimately that slide on a sketched on a whiteboard, which which is one of the most powerful ways to have a sales conversation, is, is driven by a, a very interactive, engaging whiteboard discussion where the customer and the seller feel like they're building something together, which they are uh, when done right. So. Um, Anyways, just the the power of that, you can do that. You know, in Tableau, it's a multi-billion dollar company. Um, you know, it, it's, it's you know, but that's what happens when you really get your story straight and get a narrative that sizzles. It, it's distinct, it's clear, simple, and it's conceptual at the end of the day uh, where the customer, that buyer, can see themselves in that story. That, that's really the ultimate acid test. Yeah, you know you're doing it right when a salesperson can draw this on their own on the whiteboard and have it understood. That seems like the ultimate uh, example of getting across the goal line. So you mentioned uh, Salesforce, and there are folks listening who work for enormous companies, including Salesforce and many others that I hear from. And when you start out an engagement, you often hear from your big enterprise clients something along the lines of, we're a large company with several organizations, subsidiaries, and divisions. We offer hundreds of products. We target scores of buyer personas across dozens of verticals and serve clients that work in a wide range of industries. I can almost hear Marcus Sheridan telling the joke of, you see, Bruce, we're different. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I hear the same sort of thing when a company's about to say, you see, Bruce, that's great, but we're different. How do you respond when they ask if one single go-to-market narrative can really appeal to all their all their many audiences? Oh, I, well, I, I just have been to the mountaintop, and I've got examples to share and how that's possible. You know, I do talk about that in uh, the book. I, I have a chapter on tailoring your narrative because mm-hmm. some some organizations that I've served, you know, the bigger organizations are, are highly complex. I, I, one of the stories I tell in there is about working with Alcatel Lucent and uh, their their enterprise division at the time. I started there, and uh, that was two point five billion dollar business uh, with you know a multitude of products. I believe four hundred and sixty at the time. <laughs> uh-huh. Great story, great story. Yeah. I mean, it seemed so, like so one of those things you... where there's no way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How did yeah. you do that? How did you slay that dragon? Yeah. No. Well, and and it it is. It's not easy. Uh, not to belittle any of this work. It, it's it's highly strategic. And so it really depends on who you partner with and, and the process that you go through, which I really lay out uh, in the book. You know, I call it the North Star messaging model, but it, it takes you through how to do this step by step. So, I, you know, I follow a deep, you know, grounded process in doing this, and I make sure the right people are on the bus with me. In the Alcatel-Lucent story, luckily, their head of enterprise strategy was on the bus, an, an incredibly enlightened gentleman. And, uh, and and others. And so I just had a, a beautiful team to work with internally. And then also a president at the time. He's now SVP over at Dell, Tom Burns. But, you know, he, he mandated, hey, we need a new message. This just is not working. And a uh, seasoned seller that he is, you know, he, he knew that <laughs> – what are we talking about? So, um, with, with all that emphasis, that allowed us uh, all to do our best work together to to land on a, a, an overarching narrative for that two point five billion dollar uh, enterprise division. And then everybody else loved that who saw you know within that you know um, Alcatel Lucent ecosystem. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, they have a subsidiary called Lucent Government Systems, or excuse me, Lucent Government Solutions. And then we we applied that narrative in, in the, the government space, the public uh, sector, uh, which is super fun in the book, talking about yeah. that. And uh, and then you know healthcare, et cetera. We we went into different markets, education, um, with that narrative, but it was kind of recast in for the language of that particular vertical, but still holding true to that strategic narrative. Right. Well, the answer is that it can be done, <laughs> and I've read how you did it. Now, Bruce, I have to ask one question, just based on having read the book. Do a lot of companies not? talk to their customers when they're trying to develop these narratives? Yeah, it's, it's pretty sad. I remember I, I gave a couple of examples where, uh, you know, people in marketing hadn't talked to customers. And, oh. and, and what I typically ask them, I go, hey, you know I, know, I know you want me to weave this into the narrative, but can you share with me uh, the testing data that, that you guys have where, where you did focus groups or, or ran studies? I want to see the data because just uh, it doesn't smell right. Uh, yeah, but, but hey, you could be right. Just show me the data. And normally there, there's no data. It was somebody. <laughs> it's like you already knew the, what the oh, answer was going to be, right? Well, yeah. yeah. And yeah, and my biggest point on all of this is, um, you know, the, the the perspective, the opinion that really matters in shaping your narrative isn't anybody in, in inside the four walls. It's actually the the target buyer. Can you dig it? <laughs> That's my number one hobby horse. Companies have so much difficulty just talking to their customers. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that that's one thing we do and that's part of the model. You know, it's our validation right. step where right. we really go in and, and test and refine and test and, and just make sure it lands right with the buyers. And the, the fun part about that is it makes it so much easier to launch it and get get adoption. Yes, um, that's how with, you almost kicked that whole part off because you were talking about this one client where the CEO was like, I, I don't think they understood what had happened. And they realized that they probably hadn't managed up to share with the CEO what was going on. <laughs> and, and it just reminded me of the notion that your most important audience is your internal audience. But also, if you're able to say, look, uh, this is the, the consumer take on all this, it just seems like it's the, the best uh, grease on the wheels. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just who, you know, that target buyer, does it, does it resonate with them? D- does it inspire them? To act, to, to, to take advantage of the solution that you have to offer. And, uh, you know, that, that's the ultimate acid test. And so the, we do that. You know, we, we test with those target, target buyers. And sometimes it's not easy. You know, these are decision makers. And, yeah, it takes weeks to get on their calendar. And, you know, but, but it, it's just such a necessary thing uh, because of all my experience of doing that. I always learn something new. You know, these target buyers, you know, I, I'll often ask them, hey, how, how would we paint this picture in an uglier way around your problem dimension? And, and they'll like, oh, you forgot this, this, and this. <laughs> and right, so right. So much. And then, you know, hey, tell me about the outcome and how can I paint that picture, you know, in a more beautiful way? Oh, definitely, Bruce, add this. And then typically it's kind of funny, but after we do that testing, they'll even ask, hey, could you send that to me, what we just did? Right. You know, and they and they, you know they want that just to reaffirm why they made the the big bet they did with your company and and you know share that internally and you know so um, everybody wins when when you have that buyer centric feedback and then that gives the sellers and marketers confidence 
to just do their job and do it really well and have more fun in their work because they're confident that, hey, they do have a story that sizzles at that point. Yeah, one of the smartest things a CEO could say if this is going on is, what have the customers had to say about this? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Particularly yeah. if they know they haven't been doing uh, any kind of dialogue with the customers. Let me just ask two other questions about the book. You reference a study by Gong, the revenue intelligence company, that found that sellers are roughly 30% more effective and efficient if they have a story structure they're following, which is following the um, cognitive flow of the problem, outcome, solution, next steps. And then you write that you will know that your narrative has been truly insightful when it exposes your buyer's blind spots or flaws in thinking in a manner that your buyer values. Explain what you mean by exposing a buyer's blind spot. Yeah, some, yeah I'd love to. Sometimes um, the buyers don't even understand the problem uh, that, that they're living in and facing, or, or they might have even, be, even become numb to it over time. Mm-hmm. But if you can expose that, Oh my goodness! Um, it, it helps so much, you know. And, and the problem dimension, I, I can't, you know, understate how important it is to really showcase that. Um, just quickly, I, I did some work with um, Adobe and uh, around some of their technology on the web. And so, a lot of websites, you'll be dancing around on a website, and then um, all of a sudden, you go to buy. And then your experience changes. And what happens is you went from that shopping website where you were kind of looking at the products, and then you went into a, some sort of a shopping cart paradigm, which is a different website uh, effectively. Might still look like the same URL at the top, but something changed. And what we did is we built around a narrative around that and said, hey, here's your web customer's experience. And, you know, they go through this, this, these phases of investigation, then they go to buy. But when they go to that one point where, where the website shifts on them, they might knowingly know it shifts, but often it's at a subconscious level. They don't even know that they change sites. There's a 40% drop-off there. Oh. And their customers didn't know that. They're buyers. They, they knew that, hey, it's probably not optimal, but they didn't know that there was a 40% drop-off. That was just millions of dollars of money being left on the table that the buyer didn't even really have a firm grasp of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huge blind spot. One other last question is, um, you mentioned that the actual selling begins after the buyer says yes, <laughs> at which point <laughs> you need to help the buyer with the purchasing process. Ex- explain what you mean there. Oh, boy. Yeah, that, and that's not my quote, or it's a gentleman who sold his business to, I believe, Clary. And, uh, you know, it, it's all around mutual action plans. He had technology that really facilitates that process to help the buyer buy. And uh, that that's what I mean uh, around that, that, you know, that that's the real work. And I, and I sometimes call that managing the muddle. You know, the customer says yes, but from yes to sign contract, there's a lot that needs to happen for 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 that to occur, and uh, you know the the best sellers support that. They understand what's going on internally, and then uh, and and help grease the skids and and make all that go well. Help that internal buyer, you know, resell it if they need to internally <laughs> to get other people to check off on it. Uh, making sure that things don't get dropped. 
Right. It might, reminded me of uh, like when the customer says yes. Really, that's the starting gun <laughs> rather than the finish line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Bruce, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I'd say get your story straight so it's clear, consistent. You know, everybody's using it, and it's catalyzing. It, it really f- inspires buyers and change. So don't leave it to chance. Definitely go to market with a story that sizzles. And, and, and if you do so, you'll have way more fun, and, and the journey will be way easier. Well, let's give the listener one thing to do today, just something to put in action, one of the ideas that, that we've talked about to get them moving in the right direction. Yeah, and we talked about this extensively, Douglas, in, in this episode, but understand the buyer-centric problem you're solving. You know, and, you know, I'd just say, you know, in, in quotes, start with the problem. Problem first, <laughs> right. not the solution. Introduce the problem. Then I often say pour gas on that problem. Oh, I like it. You know, that 40% drop-off rate, how much is that costing you? Yes. What if your leaders knew that that was the case? Would you still have your job? You know, pour gas on it. Yes. Love it. Love it. <laughs> That'll help overcome that status quo bias that that every seller and marketer faces. Oh, I don't know that anyone, any company ever goes wrong by starting with the buyer. And yet, <laughs> that doesn't seem to be what happens most of the time. Well, Bruce, looking back, what books have most inspired your work and career? Yeah, I, I've I've read a lot. <laughs> you know, I'm a constant learner and consumer of books. I love your podcast, by the way. Oh, thanks. Um, but I'd say Crossing the Chasm and Inside the Tornado. Those are two books by Jeff Moore. I love that guy. Um, I've had a chance to work with him as well on one of the boards he was serving. But, you know, um, he gracefully let me and my colleagues use a lot of his his wisdom, his metaphors, his beautiful storytelling capability to teach principles from those two books across the Asia Pacific. I did that in the late 90s. And just what an act of generosity where he just said, hey, just <laughs> send me your guys good outputs and slides and everything else, but feel free to use my stuff. And I'm like, oh, Oh my goodness. Uh, so we, we really took advantage of that and just this thanks to his grace and, and giving us around that. But, you know, he introduced me to this whole notion of how, how to go to market and, and a lifestyle, life cycle perspective of how to go to market, especially in the tech sector and, and his metaphors. I haven't met a more interesting brain uh, yet, uh, yes. somebody who thinks that way. Inside the Tornado, Strategies for Developing, Leveraging, and Surviving Hypergrowth Markets, which seems to be in 2004. And Crossing the Chasm, I believe he had a third edition come out in 2014. So if anyone's going to read it, I believe that would be the one they should find. Yeah. No, those are just great books, especially if you're in the whole domain of technology. Marketing, sales, product, and going in, and you have a go-to-market mandate. Yeah, powerful stuff. Uh, the other one on that front, you know, this one's strategic as well, is, you know, Blue Ocean Strategy. Love the book. I uh, got the chance to see the authors in Seattle when they were uh, uh, promoting it. Um, but it, it's very powerful uh, around helping you think through differentiation, market differentiation. A lot of the clients I serve don't don't have a good grasp of that. And, and that really helps uh, in crafting that, that go-to-market narrative that sizzles. You do want to stand apart with that narrative, and, and you need to have a grasp of differentiation to do so. Yeah, famous book. And I see that there's an ex, uh, expanded edition from 2015. Cool, cool. Yeah, it, it's, it's lovely. Another one would be Challenger Sale. 
And, you know, I talked a lot about, you know, problem first thinking and really kind of uh, landing on that problem with your buyer and exposing it and pouring gas on it, et cetera. The Challenger sale does a beautiful job of explaining that as well, how to really push into, um, you know, that that problem domain and and really meeting that buyer with emotion around that problem. I think they call it rational drowning, but beautiful thinking there. And that, and that kind of gave rise to this whole, you know, theme of insight selling, which, which is beautiful. Um, and some other books, I, I love reading about psychology as it relates to sales and marketing or sociology. And two books come to mind, you know, Influence by Robert Kildini, you know, that's just a classic and seminal work around around how to influence someone else. And then uh, more recently, Nancy Harhut's book, you know, Using Behavioral Science in Marketing, lot, lots of science-based ways to, to influence others, to inspire others. And uh, then finally, we talked about Mark Schaefer's books. You know, his book, Known for Personal Branding, is just powerful. Uh, his latest, Belonging to the Brand, has been really, you know, personally impactful for me. I'm growing a community of professional speakers in the Northwest right now, the greater Seattle area, and up and down the uh, the, the left coast, if you would. <laughs> and uh, his book around building communities helped me, giving me some wisdom tips and experience to, to apply and, and having a thriving community here in the Northwest. Did someone mention Mark Schaefer? I am your king. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, oh, so many great book recommendations. I've had the honor of interviewing Mark, gosh, about nine times, I think. Wow. Uh, and uh, more than any other author, as a matter of fact, at this point. He's very competitive, <laughs> of course. There's some of these uh, authors that are, they're all, they're all after each other now. I'm happy to have started this uh, friendly uh, competition. But I've had the honor of interviewing uh, Robert Cialdini a couple times. Uh, the second time was about his updated version of Influence, the Psychology yeah. of Persuasion. Uh, yeah. Just yeah. amazing. And Nancy Harhut, her book is, is, is phenomenal as well. I'm going to include links to all those. Some of those books have been on the show. Some of them haven't. I'll include links to uh, to all of them. Are there any recent or maybe upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah. So um, she was on your podcast and uh, also she spoke to us in uh, Mark Schaefer's Rise community, but Andy Cunningham's book, you know, I love reading books by people who have been, you know, steeped in industry, especially the technology industry. I love the old stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the authors of Play Bigger, for example, <laughs> I love right. their books because they talk about all, you know, some of the old, you know, go-to-market missteps and successes around category. And then Andy's uh, book, you know, she talks about, you know, get to aha and, and how to really, you know, understand your your position and your DNA around your position. I you know, I love it. I can't oh, wait to read that too. book around it's, Steve you, Jobs. You know those yeah. stories, John Chambers. Wow, uh, the impact that she had at Cisco. I didn't even know about. But you know, so her richness and her stories in that book. I I'm excited to read. I haven't read it yet. You will not be disappointed. I was so excited to be able to to interview her. So. At marketingbookpodcast.com, like I mentioned, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned or the the interviews, uh, your site, uh, your LinkedIn profile, and so forth. Uh, And now, listeners, if you would, please do me a big favor. This is your next step, listener, okay? Remember, we talked about next steps. Please reach out in some way to Bruce and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Congratulate him on this book and let him know you heard the interview. You could start an interesting conversation and... 
Bruce seems like one of those guys that would be interested in answering your questions. <laughs> so do that. Do that. Guests have told me how much they enjoy hearing from Marketing Book uh, Podcast listeners. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like uh, Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote. This book provides a simple step-by-step model to develop and deploy a compelling go-to-market narrative. The stakes for this are huge. Nobody can afford a go-to-market misfire. If your organization has made a strategic investment in your offerings and your people, it's time to maximize the market opportunity with a compelling go-to-market narrative. The book is Inspire Your Buyers. Go to market with a story that sizzles. The author is Bruce Shear. Bruce, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Douglas. It's been a pleasure. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.